0: Everybody. Come together right now. Everybody come together. Come together
1: right now. Everybody come together right now. Everybody. If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports Podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. On today's show, we will talk to legendary Major League Baseball writer, reporter, columnist Joe Posnanski, also podcaster with uh, friend of show and Good Place creator Michael Shure. We're going to talk to Joe all about his new book on Harry Houdini, about magic then and now, and, you know, about how Harry Houdini got so jacked. I mean, he's like Trump physical jacked. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, just no questioning it. And uh, we're going to dust off an old Just Not Sports fan favorite, long lost tradition, we are going to slam some hammers and give you our most ambitious or personal or whatever invites for guests for 2018. Stick around, prepare to be hammered. I'm your co-host Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago and joining me also in Chicago, the real Chicago, not the distant suburbs. He is respected, feared, beloved, outraged, sometimes PR yeah. professional, Adam Willard. Adam, yeah. did you ever think we would be slamming hammers on this show again?
2: Yeah, I did. Uh, I... All good things are brought back eventually, like Roseanne. So here we are.
1: <laughs> Don't ruin your distraction now, man. <laughs> By the way, are those those like, uh, and I can't remember if we talked about this a few weeks ago, but those uh, promos for Roseanne brought back John Goodman, and I'm like 90% sure they killed John Goodman in that show.
2: They did, but the, the final episode, it was explained to have all been a dream so i don't know how they're reintroducing the show uh but there are a lot of things that happened they they won the lottery if i'm correct they got divorced and then Jod goodman's character died so how they're bringing this back at all i'm not quite sure because it turned out to be roseanne's was it a dream or something that she was writing either way it was a very new heart-esque ending
1: yeah, I'm pretty sure what they did was after the lottery season didn't work and people didn't like it, they, they made it seem like she was writing that season because she was coping with the death of Dan and that she wrote that he left her in the millionaire season, but really it was that he died. I don't know. I, they've made fun of it a few times in the promo, so good for them. Uh, they also brought back both Darlene's, which is insane to me. So like wow. Sarah Chalk or Chalky – is going to play a different character, and I'm sure they'll do some fourth wall breaking with that. But, um, yeah, not 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 super sure the world needed more Roseanne, but uh, we'll, you know, we'll give it a shot. Uh, huh. Also, with Wait, us both, in our Brooklyn there were two Bureau,
2: Darlene's or or two Becky's?
3: Uh,
1: it was you know two what? Becky's, one and Darlene. I, You're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah don't care. I'm a good okay. full Jay Cutler. Don't care which which one of these were named. I do like Sarah Chalky though. Uh, I should learn how to pronounce her name. Also with us in our Brooklyn bureau, he is seven-time Emmy-winning sports producer Gareth Hughes. Gareth, uh, what's one show that left the air that you would actually like to see come back?
3: Oh, Deadwood. I I want to see the Deadwood movie. I want some more Deadwood in
1: my life. I am. Uh, I. Every year, I say to my wife that we're one year away from uh, a Friends reunion show because everyone in that group is getting a less and less famous by the day, and eventually, someone's gonna be like, "You know what, guys? I need this cash. Get, get, we're we're bringing it back." And eventually, Jennifer Aniston will just decide, "Fine, the roles have dried up. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'll 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 end my holdout." But I digress. All right, moving on. It's time to slam the hammer. So, for the noobs, the newbies of the show joining maybe in episode 105 for the first time, when we started the show, you know, we've always clung to the same premise that we, we bring on athletes and media, the people who play cover sports, and we only talk to them about one thing they really like and nothing else. And so, we used to just put our invites out publicly. Uh, in a process we called slam that slamming the hammer as we were just, you know, hey, other shows send email invites out. We just call you out. We want you to come on the show and talk about X, Y and Z. Eventually, I don't know what it was, Gareth. I think you, you were like, let's change this up. And one Sunday we just said, fine, we're just going to kind of shift and and we'll just kind of talk about whatever we want to talk about, not through the lens of inviting the people on. So with 2018 staring us down, we just thought, you know what? Maybe let's just look ahead, throw out a couple people that we definitely want to have on the show and why, and and uh, you know, give a little give a little taste back to the original fans who've been following us since since Chad Brown and Shea Serrano did our first two episodes. So, Adam, I'm going to start with you, man. Uh, Who you want to slam the hammer to for 2018?
2: I think this will come as no surprise to anyone who listens to this podcast but Stefan Marbury is a guy we've had targeted since we started our Twitter handle and probably when we concepted the show. And Alan Iverson is another one of my favorite athletes of all time. As you may have they're heard They're actors. Pre- they're not
1: athletes. They're actors.
2: Well, yes, as you may have heard Triple on, on our previous, e- previous episode of Just Not Sports, they appeared together in the uh, semi-autobiographical- uh, Stefan Marbury My Other Home um and not sure if this exchange actually ever happened in China but there is a, a excellent restaurant scene where Marbury and Iverson um reunite and then at the end of the movie there's a suggestion that they're going to play each other one on one and I, I've always been a huge basketball fan and Looking at Iverson and Marbury, there are a lot of similarities from the beginning and a lot of things that were different. Uh, I'd be curious to hear what a day in the life of Allen Iverson looks like. And I'd like to hear them talk about their – I I know we don't normally talk about what happens on the court, but more of like their journey as men through the NBA and into retirement and how do they look back on – on their careers and the, the choices they made. And, and Allen Iverson's an interesting guy because he may be one of those guys, those athletes that we hear a lot about athletes like Kobe Bryant who has these great business ventures after retirement. But for every uh, Kobe Bryant, there's a lot of guys who say, I, I made my money and I kind of just want to chill. And that may very well be Allen Iverson, but I'd love to hear what both of them are up to and, and the reflections on life.
1: He's got too much acting talent to leave that on the table, man. I mean, you 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 got to get out there and get in a franchise. I mean, they, they, Chris Hemsworth, just uh, his contract's up on, for Thor. I want to see uh, The Answer jump into that role.
2: <laughs> At 160 pounds soak, soaking wet.
1: I'm going to throw out one. I'm going to slam the hammer to American soccer golden boy Christian Pulisic who I recently saw an interview with. He says he's playing in Germany for um, one of the top teams over there, but watching a lot of Netflix, he says. So I want to know what he's watching. I want to break it all down. And I got a message for Christian. You got the time, man. You're not, you got plenty of time this summer to come on the show and talk about Netflix because U.S. Soccer completely wet the bed and let you down <laughs> and did not, did not follow your lead into the World Cup. So, my friend, not not no fault of yours, nor any of the other athletes. I mean, they tried. Come on the show. Let's talk about what we're going to binge watch this summer. Let's get some regular appearances and some reviews, uh, episode to episode, some recaps like Doc Jensen style. Come on. Christian, Golden Boy, Mr. Soccer. Uh, you know, I'm slamming the hammer. All right, Gareth, nice. you're up. Who, who's Who's on your list?
3: All right, my first one, because Adam already referenced it. Shea Serrano, you seem to be the busiest man in sports. I want you to come back, and I want to ask you, why the hell did you come on this unaired podcast for episode two? Man, <laughs> that is awesome. I want to ask him, like, okay, you're writing a basketball book. You're getting shout-outs from Lynn manuel Miranda. You're working on a show with Mike Shur. At, this podcast didn't even exist when you came on. You're like the biggest guest we've had. It's <laughs> um, a good point. Shea Serrano, what made you do the Just on Sports podcast? And don't just say it was the great time you had working with Brad and or Adam.
2: I have my theories, but we'll cover off, off air.
1: Okay. All right. Gareth, you just mentioned a former guest, uh, episode two. I got, a, I got a handful of folks that I, I want to have back on the show um, because – when they came on, they talked about certain parts of pop culture that they wanna that they they really want to go see, and I just figured like let's invite them back on to you know to break it all down. So let's talk. To, let's start with U.S. Women's uh, National Team uh, player Becky Sauerbrunn, who came on and talked about sci-fi and fantasy. She said one of her favorite books was Ready Player One. It's going to be a Spielberg movie. There's lots of talk about it already. Lots of backlash about it who knows what it's going to be like. I think Becky should come on and talk about it. And then Brian Curtis from the Ringer. We talked about Jurassic Park. There's another Jurassic Park movie coming out this year. The first trailer, Brian and I had a had a nice exchange on Twitter. It looks utterly ridiculous. <laughs> like they just had no other no other plot to get them back on the island but save the dinos. Fine. Um uh, but definitely think he should come on. And then he hasn't been on the show before but uh, Major League Baseball uh, player Sean uh, Doolittle, who is a huge Star Wars fan, has made news a couple times for his Star Wars fandom. I want to have him on to talk about this Han Solo movie, because I think this Han Solo movie might be the most polarizing movie of the year, just based on how the last Star Wars went and how they're redefining like you know a really iconic character with another actor. So, there's a triple threat for you of people that should come on, break down these uh, these movies, and, uh, and, and, you know, it'll be summer blockbuster season. It'll be great. Awesome. Cool. I'm into that.
3: Okay. Uh, I've talked on here about quitting drinking, substance abuse. John Skipper. <laughs> I'm throwing the hammer down. I wanted one that was a big, ridiculous swing for the fences, um, and that one seemed... As I was talking to my wife, she was like, what about John Skipper? And I was like, well, that's a big, ridiculous swing for the fences. I'm going to put that one on my list.
2: I'm glad you said that because this one does seem um, almost ridiculously obvious. But Dennis Rodman was picked up for DUI again um, over the weekend. And uh, I don't know that he's a guy recovering from addiction or in... The midst of it, I don't know if he, if he'd ever, if that ever be something he would even be willing to discuss. But I think we can all agree he's one of the most fascinating personalities in sports. I'd like to say, oh, I'd want to talk to him about something lighter, like his uh, his trips to North Korea or being a basketball ambassador. But honestly, if I have, if I have to be candid, I'd say I'm most interested to talk about what life is like for him and is he still in the in the midst of addiction and and what is life like i guess that i guess that's it
1: yeah adam we can we can break all that down with him right after i finish my 10 questions in a row about his jean-claude van damme movie (laughs) double team (laughs) uh because i have thoughts on that particular film my friends speaking of stretch guests I got to Venus Williams. I've reached out to her people before. Maybe their emails, uh, maybe their emails down, you know, I don't know, (laughs) but uh, you know, she's got a fashion line. I think she was, she was really into fashion almost, you know, right off the bat in her career. She had a great comeback season this past season uh making it really deep in the in the US Open and and, and some of the other Grand Slams. I would love to break down with her, um, you know, her fashion line and really just how does an athlete stay, you know, balance all the training they do with, with staying current in the in the world of fashion. And then hey, Tiger Woods. Uh he he's big into like kind of navy SEAL, like Army special ops like culture. So here's Mm -hmm. my deal. I want to watch the Charlie Sheen movie, Navy Seals, with Tiger.
2: Wow. And just
1: just riff. We'll do a live episode, or he can watch it in advance, and uh, and we'll break it down. But I think that would be awesome.
2: Or we could watch season one of the current TV show, Seal Team. Uh...
1: I don't think it could hold a candle to, to Navy Seals. I mean, <laughs> Sheen, as a Navy Seal, come on. <laughs> okay. And okay. Fair when enough. we
3: sit down to him, can I float him my spec script for Mac Daddy Santa starring Tiger Woods,
1: coming this Christmas?
2: Uh, that sounds
1: like. You- like a, like a joke in the poochy episode of The Simpsons, Gareth.
3: <laughs> Did you guys... No, you haven't seen that meme? No. No. Oh, my God. Like, so... I think it was probably two years ago where he just... like It was, like, December 10th, and he just posted this picture that was, like, Mac Daddy Santa is back. Parentheses. My kids love this. And it was him shirtless... Wearing a, a dyed white goatee and a white wig, like with his arms crossed and like mirrored shades, as if he was wow. Mac Daddy Santa
1: Claus. I just saw this right now. This is ridiculous. <laughs> it's great. Like, can I mean, we make Mac just Daddy just Santa with Tiger Woods while he's at it? Hell yeah! Yeah, we'll get that Kickstarter up tomorrow, man. I'm in. I'm I'm 100% in.
3: That would be the most Patreon-era thing ever, where Podcast Makes Movie with Tiger Woods asks for you to fund it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, any final uh, hammers for the year? Uh, I, mean, any I got one f- more. How about this? I, I got s- one more. Okay.
3: And I'm going to reach out to this guy this week, because this caught my eye, and I really enjoyed reading it. I thought this was interesting. Um, Pardon me if I'm pronouncing your last name wrong Jorge Arangure um, He was the former editor-in-chief of Vice Sports And he stepped down on January 9th By penning an article on Medium Called Why I'm Done Working in Sports um, Whoa It was a very personal piece about why I read that piece, yeah, it was good why sports no longer holds his interest and why he'd like to take the skills he has accrued in this field and apply them to broader interests. I think it's something that everyone on this podcast has felt at various points, Mm -hmm. sometimes more acutely than others. Um, I also don't think it's a stretch to say that is we're on a podcast called Just Not Sports. Not Sports, Uh, You know, I don't think I'm really breaking any news here, but more than anything, I admired him going public with that and drawing his line in the sand. And so uh, I'd like to talk to him about his work in sports, both good and bad, because I think that if you're just going to, you know, like there had to be some good times to get to the end. And I think it's important to remember that too, and what he hopes to do for the future. So that is my final hammer for 2018.
2: Wow. Good one. I I have one more. Um, it would be a relatively short podcast, but I just want, I hammered a dead to, guy once. So no, no
3: podcast is going to be shorter than that.
2: I, <laughs> I would really, uh, just like to have John Gruden on and thank him for leaving television and going back to coaching Well, I have to hear where I could hear way less of him. That's it.
1: And with that, Hammers of 2018 are finished. Uh, Right now, we're going to go to just a really fun interview that Gareth and I did with uh, Joe Posnanski. You know him from his work currently on uh, MLB. And, and MLB TV, uh, Breaking Down Baseball. You know him from Sports Illustrated, other, um, other publications and papers along the way. Uh, so Such a smart, astute um, analyst of the game and, and sports in general. And he's the host of the podcast with uh, Michael Shore. Um, we wanted to break down his uh, interest in Houdini. Uh, Joe has actually decided to write a book about Houdini. So we talk about what it's like as a sports writer to pitch that book, <laughs> what the writing and, and researching process has been like, you know, how do you separate the man from the myth when it comes to Houdini and just overall his thoughts on magic as entertainment, magic as cultural force. And then after that, we will be back to distract you. Stick around. Stick around. We refuse to talk sports on this show, but before we get into Houdini, I just have to say, uh, you know, I've got, I'm from, Gareth and I are both from um, the Cincinnati area from Oxford. Uh, Ah, very good. Yeah, we're we're Bengals fans, uh, but my my parents are from Northeast Ohio, Warren, Niles area. They grew up really big Browns fans, you know, preaching about, you know, uh, how my grandpa coached Paul Warfield in Little League and all this other stuff. And I just wanna let you know that I felt very encouraged knowing that the Browns cannot possibly botch the draft any worse than Brandon McCarthy did during your Christmas song, your Christmas song draft for the podcast with it the first pick picking that Christmas in Sarajevo garbage. Uh, by whatever.
0: Unfathomable.
1: That band, unfathomable. that group used to play. I used to be a music critic in Peoria, Illinois, and that group would play every year like clockwork. It was like oh. we were, it was like we were Springsteen coming back to New Jersey for them. <laughs> And I just, what were your thoughts when that happened? Because I think that was one of the most entertaining poz, uh, podcasts that I've, I've I've heard in the last year. And I'm not even making that up. It's it's absolutely unbelievable, unbelievably hilarious.
0: Yeah, I, I it, it, Brandon. First of all, Brandon himself is is hilarious, and he's also hilarious to make fun of. And uh, we had no idea that he was going to go off the board for for freaking Christmas in Sarajevo, and. When he did it, it was. I think all of us were just like so stunned. And it's funny, we did a, a podcast today, Mike and I did, uh, just us, and uh, we were talking about that draft because somebody is doing like a like a Reddit, like a subreddit on uh, on the podcast, and they've like literally gone through every one and like recapped every post which is ridiculous.
1: Mel Kiper style, yeah,
0: the Mel Kuiper style with 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 uh, the draft uh, details and and uh he has Mike winning most of the drafts which he's wrong but in that hmm. draft he said that Sepinwall won that draft uh that was his his uh, you know eventual pick and we were discussing it and it was like well we don't really know if Sepinwall won or didn't win i mean it was you know whatever but uh, we know who finished fifth we know <laughs> we know who is dead last on that uh On that puppy, I, yeah, I, oh, Christmas. Just, I honestly, that is not an exaggeration. I, I cannot imagine a worse experience than being stuck in a, in a, any kind of arena with those guys playing (laughs) that, any song, but that song in particular. Just, I, I can't, I can't imagine it worse. I just can't. I, it's, well, it's it's awful.
1: Well for our listeners please go download the podcast with a Christmas episode it is well worth it I was I was laughing during doing the dishes when Michael got up to pick and he goes well I'm going to pick one of the best songs ever made not just a Christmas song Christmas in Sarajevo and you go that was chosen
0: 5 minutes out yeah. and then he goes into an incredible rant about the uh, <laughs> what no no <laughs> How could that?
1: No, good oh, stuff. Geez. Well, okay. So Houdini, I, I want to talk about the because you're writing a book about Houdini, which which really really counts as a just not sports Hall of Fame. Uh, candidacy that, <laughs> that you're going in this route. I want to break it all down. I want to start with this, because you've written about Houdini a bit here and there, and, and I thought this quote really stood out to me. You you say, uh, there are those who see him as the ultimate magician and those who don't see him as a magician at all. I think he was and remains an idea. And I, I, I wanted to kind of start by asking you, what did you mean by that? And as you've gone on this journey to discover who Houdini was, how do you balance the man himself and the mythos, the idea that surrounds him to this day? Well,
0: you've just asked the sort of singular question of this entire project. Uh, <laughs> you know, I when I when I started doing this, I didn't really know very much about Houdini, uh which is strange, I mean you would think if I was doing a book on Houdini, that I would be sort of a lifelong fan. And, I, you know, I liked Houdini. I liked magic. Um, I'd seen, like, the Tony Curtis movie about Houdini, and I'd, I'd, you know, maybe picked up things here and there. I think that I would probably have been able to answer the trivia question of what his real name was. But that was pretty much it. I knew nothing about Houdini. And more to the point, for for a book, which, you know, this is my – fifth book uh, that I would consider, I've, I've got a collection as well, but but my fifth book that I started from scratch and unlike any of the other books, I didn't know anybody in the community that right. I was writing about. I didn't know a single magician, mm-hmm. I didn't know a single magic historian, I knew nobody. I mean, I, I, I look back and wonder how in the heck, first of all, I was able to convince anybody to publish it, but much less, how in the heck did I think I was going to do this? And The thing that kept driving me was this idea that Houdini, to me, represents something more. Like, I'm interested in Houdini the man. I'm certainly interested in Houdini the myth. Uh, All of those things are are exciting and fun. and, And, I mean, there is nobody, I would imagine, who has more, certainly in recent times, or even relatively recent times, I mean, he did die 90 years ago, but relatively recent times, who has so much myth uh you know wrapped up in his life you nothing about him is real you have no idea what's true i mean you know he kept it secret for 70 years where he was born i mean it's really you know just a fascinating element but what really pushed me to do this book was this notion that here we are in 2018 now and it is you know we're this technologically advanced world and nobody really you know, falls for anything. If any sort of interesting magic uh, trick or magic performance uh, makes any sort of headway, everybody runs to YouTube to find out how they did it. You know, there's no real secrets left. And yet here's a guy who is still sort of the very essence of this, this idea that you can escape, that you can escape impossible situations. And, No matter, you know, every day I have a a Google alert just so every time Houdini is mentioned in a story, I get like a little alert. And every day he is mentioned somewhere, and it's often somewhere not in the United States. It's often, you know, in India or Australia or Russia or, you know, England, uh, Canada, certainly. uh, And it's always some reference to somebody getting out of something impossible. So it's mm-hmm. some you know, some person who was arrested who somehow escaped the car and got away, some dog that they can't keep in the yard because he keeps finding his way out, you know, some baby who can get out of any crib, some politician who seemed you know dead in the water and somehow escaped. And it's always Houdini. Now how? How is that possible that this guy who did tricks uh, and escapes that are so cliche now. If you think about it, not, not all of them, but you know the straitjacket and 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 the, the Chinese water torture cell, and you know you can go to the state fair and see any of these things. How did he maintain that level of wonder and and awe and and mystery? Like how did he do it? And that that's the book. So the book is certainly about his life, that's sort of one track. But the other track, the really exciting track for me, because that it's never been done, is this idea of Houdini now and all of these people that he has inspired and all these people that, that are are, you know, still study him and try to find new things about him. All these people that don't like him and, and try to discredit him. Uh, you know, it's it's a big, huge community so many years after his death. And I don't know who else is like that. I don't know who else who really was at his peak, you know, during the 1910s? Other than maybe, you know, 1900s. Other than maybe Teddy Roosevelt, uh, that still has this extraordinary following in the world. And and so that's really what was sort of the driving influence behind me as an I, you know, as Houdini as an idea.
3: I was an English major uh, around the turn of the century, like the late 90s into the 2000s. And it, that was a moment where it felt like Houdini was experiencing, I, I want to say experiencing a moment, but to your point, his moment might never have ended. But there was just, there were a slew of books around that time. Uh, Cavalier and Clay, the Carter, uh, Carter Beats the Devil. Um, there was another book, uh, a nonfiction book I picked up uh, called The Turk. They all used Houdini as a major touchstone or character reference or a character himself and I just it it was almost uncanny the way that he loomed this real life figure loomed over some of these for some of those a fictional work and so that's what made me want to talk about it with you and you're starting to get into this and I think this is sort of the germ of the book but where does the truth end with his life where does the myth begin does it matter
0: uh, again, sort of hit hit the nail on the head of what I'm writing, um, because I'm writing about myth as myth, right? So I'm mm-hmm. writing about Houdini. I want to tell the stories as as they have been told, even though those stories aren't necessarily true. And I want to figure out how to do that in such a way where you understand, as a reader, you're in sort of a little dream world that he. Very, very carefully and, and 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 cautiously and and boldly created. He created this world. There's a there's a story in in you know he was he he didn't move to uh, to the United States until he was four. His family, his his mother, brought him over and they moved to Appleton, Wisconsin, and that's where he spent well, only a couple of years. Well, he knew this obviously. He knew that he was not born in Appleton, Wisconsin. And yet he would write letters to people in Appleton uh, where he would talk about, oh, my mother said you were in the house when I was born. You know, he would say this to people (laughs) in Appleton, you know, to try to, I I don't know, to try to do what. It's like, it, it was like once he got into these, this character. So there's, there's countless stories, almost none of the Houdini stories that I'm writing or that anybody has written. Are is there any real proof? We know he ran away from home when he was twelve because there's a there's a card that he sent his mother that he kept. But almost nothing else from his childhood, for instance, is is real. I mean it's it's there. We know it happened. We know there's there's something to it. We know it was you know, he grew up in, in Wisconsin, he moved to Milwaukee, the, the the family had a very rough time, he ended up in New York. I mean, we know some of the sort of framework but the individual stories that he would tell about going to a circus and 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 doing things like that, working for a locksmith, and, you know, fun little games he used to play, like going downtown and in, in Appleton and unlocking all the doors in the downtown, you know, they're they're not true, but <laughs> but they but they're there's something better than truth in some ways with those stories, and that is they they so get into the mindset of. of what he was trying to create and what he ended up actually creating, because here we are all these years later and there's not a person I've met where I've said, I'm doing a book on Houdini that they haven't had some thought on that, right? That they haven't thought, Oh, that's really interesting. Or I, I know a little bit about Houdini or wow, Houdini, that seems weird, but there's never like a feeling of like, who, who is that? You know, everybody (laughs) knows him. Everybody knows him. he is, he is still the most famous, you know, and I think there are plenty of famous magicians, David Copperfield, and, and David Blaine, and Penn and Teller, and, and, and many others. But he's he's the one that worldwide, anywhere you go, they know Houdini, they know who he is, and that was that was what he wanted to create, and <laughs> it's fascinating that somebody in that time, when fame was not. The 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 thing that it is now, you know. There's a there's a great uh, one of one of my favorite people that I've worked with on this book that I've talked to is a guy by the name of Jim Steinmeyer, who is a writer. Uh, has written some wonderful books about magic, but he's also a magic inventor. He was the guy that really developed the the notion of uh, of making the Statue of Liberty disappear, for instance. And he's a wonderful guy, and and such a such a great thinker, and. W- he he's not a huge fan of Houdini's, but he believes that nobody uh that the thing about that's wonderful and amazing about Houdini is that Houdini had this modern sense of fame uh and promotion, self promotion, which he was great at. Um that is he was a genius because nobody in his time really had that. Nobody in his time really was trying for, you know, worldwide fame or worldwide fame that would last for the next hundred years but he was and and uh so interesting and and your point about about him having sort of a renaissance in the early part of the of the you know this this decade or, or last decade I guess I was 100 percent true there that's how it's happened he's he's sort of gone into into sort of quiet area you know sort of 30 20 years after his death and then the, the the Tony Curtis movie came out and then there was a book that came out and then it was kind of quiet until the mid 70s and then he had a huge huge rebirth in the mid 70s with when, when uh, uh, you know various uh things happened it was it was that uh, Doug Henning started doing some of Houdini's magic on television David Copperfield was started doing these big big illusions inspired by by Houdini. Uh, and then there was a, a, a slew of books and, and movies and, and various television things, and then you're right, the fiction thing really started happening. And, and I loved, uh, I particularly loved Carter the Great, and he came out. I, I did like Cavalier and Clay, but Carter the Great uh, has such a such a wonderful Houdini. He, they have the the vengeful houdini who who would sneak up on on magicians and and uh uh and, and expose them and uh that's uh that's a big part of the book also so um so yeah he he's he he doesn't go away and, and it's been all these years and he's still not going away
3: I, I think he'd be proud to know that as i was coming home i said to my wife i was like hey i gotta do a podcast interview at nine um she lo- cavalier and clay is one of her favorite books i was like But it's about Houdini, so I think, you know, she was like, yeah, of course you should do that interview. Like, Houdini's fucking cool, man. (laughs) And I'm like, hey, man, 100 years later, chicks dig Houdini.
0: Yeah, no, he is. He's really cool. And he's cool, you know, in in, in a lot of ways. Uh, He's also incredibly uh, difficult in a lot of ways. But the thing he created, this sense of, of, you know, there's there's a section of the book where I talk about there's a, a pretty famous within magic poster and probably outside of magic as well. There's a poster of Houdini as the king of cards. It was something that he tried to do early in his in his uh, magic career before the escape thing really took off, which is what made him Houdini. Uh, so he was he loved cards and so he would do you know card tricks and a lot of flourishes and that kind of thing. So there's a, a famous. Um, there's a famous painting, that, uh, not painting, but like a poster, promotional poster that I'm looking at right now. It's on my wall of Houdini as the king of cards. Well, that poster is hugely famous. And, I, and, and I've talked to numerous people in Magic, including one of my favorite people, a young woman a magician named Jen Kramer, who's awesome, who would talk about the power of that poster and how that poster was on her wall when she was a kid and she became a card magician and she would look up at that thing and, and how much it meant to her. Uh, he was a hack. He was a total card hack. Everybody <laughs> knows that. I mean, he was terrible at cards. And, and there's another magician named Di Vernon who is widely acknowledged as sort of the the ultimate card magician, the guy that everybody sort of learned you know the real craft uh, who also hated Houdini by the way um <laughs> nobody knows diverted nobody knows Diverted, but everybody knows the guy king of cards harry houdini uh, and that just is the is the power of of what he was able to do it's really cool
1: yeah i have a question that you know as i started looking into him and <clears throat> kind of you know just surveying all the different like sources on the internet here prepping for the interview this is a little bit off the beaten path but Houdini was jacked. Like dude was straight cut. Oh. And I'm yeah. just wondering, in your research, have you found out like was he perhaps a pioneer of modern exercise or was that just the result of doing and practicing all the different death-defying hanging and other stuff that he was doing?
0: Well, he was he was an athlete. I mean, he was when he was young, he was a boxer, he was a swimmer, he was a runner. Um that's really what he was. And and I know we don't talk sports here, but um, Hmm. that's kind of what he always was. I mean, really, he was never sort of a, a, just a beautiful magician who, who pulled off these, you know, even, even some of his most famous, uh, you know, magical things like making the elephant disappear, going through the wall. It kind of landed with a dud because that wasn't what anybody expected from him. What they expected from him is, Hey, I brought 20 handcuffs with me to the to the to the <laughs> right. stage today, and, and I'm gonna put you in them and let's see you get out of them. I mean, it was really a challenge. And and that's what they used to call him. The challenge is that's what made Houdini was Houdini could get out of anything. And that's an athletic thing. There, there was no magic involved. That was that was being smart and pitching locks and and, and moving his body in certain ways. So he really was an athlete, but he, by the way, he knew it. I mean, he, he understood the power. Cause I mean, he was, he was totally muscled up and later, you know, when he, when he first started having success, uh, people started saying, Oh, well, he's just hiding the key and sort of on a lark. He mentioned in an interview, he goes, you know what? I, I, I don't, I'm not hiding anything. I'll do this thing naked. And he started doing, Naked escapes, nude escapes. That became his thing, and there's a very famous picture that's probably in many ways the picture of Houdini, and that is him sort of in the nude. I might be wearing some sort of, you know, shorts or something. But it's basically the nude in chains, kind of staring at the at the camera, and that's who Houdini was.
1: What were what what would you say were the Quintessential, or maybe most most famous, or most uh, death defying tricks that he did. What do you think holds up as uh, showmanship, or as people still look at it with a certain amount of wonder, such as like you know the the, the famous sort of water torture cell? Uh, sure. I don't. No matter who you are, going upside down, uh, handcuffed in water, makes you cringe. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah. Yeah. It's funny. The you know the illusionists. Uh, one of the people I talked to is a guy by the name of Andrew Basso, who is the guy who is part of the Illusionist, the Broadway and I guess now national tour, uh, and he does this. He does his own version of the water torture cell, and he does it um, uh, completely in the in the open, which Houdini did not. Houdini did it behind a curtain, uh, you know, he just basically, you saw him go in, the curtain went down and then he got out, Andrew Basso does it in front of everybody went to see him with my family. So, you know, you're talking about, a, a at that point, I guess, probably a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old girl uh, and, uh, and my wife. And I was really interested to see what the reaction was going to be when he did the Chinese water torture cell. And I got to tell you, they were gripping the side of their <laughs> seats, right? I mean, they're just uh. totally into it. Everybody was. And – he did it very differently than Houdini because you could see him and you could feel how, you know, how long he had to hold his breath. I mean, and he does it, he does it straight. I don't believe Houdini necessarily did it straight. He gets out of the water torture cell. I mean, he, he isn't messing around. There's no trick, you know? Um, but yeah, that's, that's really cool. And look, the my, my favorite thing, and, and it's a whole section of the book just to give you a, uh, a little preview. My whole, my favorite uh, Houdini illusion is something called the mirror cuffs. And in 1904, the Daily Mirror challenged Houdini to get out of these cuffs that were uh, that were made. As the story goes, it took five years for a locksmith to make these unbreakable cuffs, essentially handcuffs. And to get out of the handcuffs, even with a key, you had to put a key in and turn it for a bunch of different ways in order to, to actually get out. So it is not possible to get out with your hands in the cuffs, even if you have the key, because it was a long key. And, and it's just not possible. And Houdini said, I'll give it a try. And, and very famously went behind the curtain, came out. He he had not gotten out. He asked for some water and then he went back and then he, you know, it, it took him an hour and a half and he got out and, To this day, nobody knows how he did it. And Hmm. all of these magicians have have studied it. They all have theories, and everybody, you know, thinks their theory is right. But nobody really knows how he did it. And those cuffs are still available. They're they're there to be seen. They're actually at, uh, well, they're not easily seen, but David Copperfield has it in his private museum, so I've seen them. Uh, They're amazing. And... He got out so I love that I love that there's something that he did that to this day because everybody has pretty strong understanding of how he probably got out of the water torture cell or how he probably got out of the milk can or or how he maybe elephant disappear or these kinds of things but even to this day it's just a theory nobody really knows how he got out of the mirror cuffs so so I spent a lot of time on that one
3: so as you spend time on that as you spend time writing the book you mentioned this earlier, what have you also learned about magic trick development and mechanics? Because that seems to be a large part of this as well.
0: It's awesome. I mean, it's <laughs> really, it is, and you know, I'm not, uh, I, I'm not really a, you know, I'm not a magician, not really. I don't have to throw really in there. I'm not a magician, and I'm not even an amateur magician. Uh, but I've always had a very uh, strong appreciation for magic for for really really artful magic you know the stuff that you'll see you know teller or somebody like that do and teller had a pretty famous quote uh, that he gave a friend of mine actually for a GQ story uh this was an Esquire story uh, he's gonna kill me for saying GQ um hmm. where he said magic is Sometimes magic is just spending more time on something than anybody would consider realistic. Something to that effect, where you just you're just hammering home something. You're working so hard on something nobody would believe you ever spent that much time on it. And that's the coolest thing, you know. I, I've been to a couple of magic uh, conferences now that were not specific Houdini, but this was more to get a background. And I've watched some extraordinary extraordinary sleight of hand magicians sort of explain how they do certain things and you know just just the process of watching there's a guy named Eric Mead who's an amazing sleight of hand magician and i watched him for i would say maybe 2 hours it was an hour and a half for sure explain one trick that he did with a coin one trick where he made coins go from one hand to the other. And it was mesmerizing. I was so excited and blown away by it because it was so, because I, because to me it went beyond magic to me. And it it even went beyond art, like that whole thing. It was about craft. It was about how you do something really, really, really well. And how hard it is to do anything really well. And, I just I just loved it. So I've gotten a lot of that. Now, admittedly, a lot of it I can't use because it doesn't quite fit into the idea of why it is that Houdini still matters today. And 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 one of the challenges of this book is I could go on 500 cool tangents and never get back to the book. So right. so I've got to focus so much of my energy on on why what is it about Houdini what is it about these people why why did he influence them why you know there's a, there's a really fun magician from Australia uh named Cosentino uh who basically just one day was looking through a magic book and saw a a picture of Houdini uh it was actually the one i mentioned earlier the the, the naked houdini with uh, staring into the camera and he was so mesmerized by the way his face looked that he became a magician. I mean that he, that the, mm-hmm. his whole life altered. You know that this here's this guy from you know a hundred years ago just basically piercing, you know his soul. All these years later, it's really cool. So, so I have to focus so much on that. And and part of me sometimes thinks God, I could write like a little, like a little book about how cool magic is now because I'll, I'm, I'm meeting all of these. Amazing magicians and how I see how they work and I and it's so cool and and, and all of that, um, but I better get my Houdini book finished first. I better
3: focus on. <laughs> you could maybe get a column in Poof Magazine. Joe Bluth would read it. I mean, he'd be
1: taken care of there. <laughs> That's all I need. So, yeah. Houdini's life is not something you can talk about without ultimately winding to his death. I think most people sure. know the story. I'm less interested, especially given the topic of your book or the focus of your book. I'm less interested in like what's true, what's not about his death. But I am—I've always been curious whether it's deflating for him to have died after. I mean, whether it was stomach ailments or the punch that he took. Sure. Uh, whether it's that's deflating to his myth, or whether it's something that reminds us of the humanity of him. And allows us to be more, uh, I guess, uh, awed or inspired by all these death-defying things that an average person was able to do. So, what do you read on the way we we react to his, the, the unusual circumstances of him dying after allegedly a punch to the stomach?
0: Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's a huge. You know, when you talk about the reasons why Houdini. Uh, still matters today, why he's still so prominent today, his death is a big part of it. I mean, that, that's a big, big part, because it's fascinating, and it's controversial, and it's mysterious, and he died on Halloween, and and there's just, there's just a lot going on there. There's a lot happening. The interesting part for me, or one of the interesting parts for me, is for years and years and years, everybody thought, and I mean everybody thought... That Houdini died in the Chinese water torture cell because that's the way the story was told in the Tony Curtis movie. He dies in the water torture cell, trying to trying to create this great feat, you know and and the producer said something to the effect of they said, well, why did you do that? You know why did you change his death?" And he said something to the effect of Houdini deserved a death worthy of Houdini. Like he didn't, he didn't deserve to die the way he died, uh, which is, I think, ridiculous. And also for all those years, and I mean, you know, that movie came out in 52, well into the 80s and, and even into the 90s. That's how people thought he died. I mean, you would go up to almost anybody and say, how did Houdini die? And they would say he died in the water torture cell. So it was only, you know, sort of in the late eighties and early nineties that, that you know the story started getting retold about how Houdini really died and, and, and the punch in the stomach and, and what it meant and, and all of that. And I think it, first of all it's crazy, right? It's it's crazy <laughs> and it, it speaks a little bit to his well, it speaks not a little bit, a lot to his ego and his his sense of 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 self. You know, not only that he, you know, had a let a guy hit him in the stomach, which, you know, there's all sorts of, I mean, boy, I mean, I can tell you this, it, the, his death is, is one of the, one of those topics that, that there's just countless thoughts about, you know, so I've heard it from many different ways, but, from from the basics that he let a guy hit him in the stomach, and then he was in excruciating pain and refused to stop working, probably in part because he didn't want to admit that somebody had hurt him by hitting him in the stomach, being, you know, kind of a goofball. So, so you know, so that's all very, very interesting. And I think it adds to it. I, I think, you know, there's there's something we all like, I guess, about irony, right? And here's the inescapable Harry Houdini, the guy, you know, no... No one, nothing could ever hold him prisoner, right? That was his big thing. Nothing on earth could hold Houdini a prisoner. And he's, you know, he's he's still performing. He actually had his own magic show at that point, which it was a lifelong dream of his. He was, you know, very, he, he'd become in many ways as famous as he ever would because he was, he was, uh, you know, going after spiritualists at the time. So he was, he was sort of at the top of his game in some ways and, and he just dies suddenly after a guy hits him in the stomach and he dies of something that now, uh, you know, is, is very easily treatable and probably would have even in his time been very easily treatable if they, had, if they had caught it earlier. So I think it speaks to his humanity and people are really interested in it. And again, I think the fact that it was on, on Halloween that he died and, and all of that, it, it's, it's definitely a big part of the mythology of Houdini.
3: So, Joe, you are, um, I don't want to say you're a baseball writer, you're a sports writer, but you've written a lot about baseball. It's how we came to you. Um, and as we were coming into this interview today, I was trying to think of outside of Houdini, like, I think like Ruthian is a last name that has become a word or an adjective or something like that. Can you think of any other people who have achieved that level of fame, I, I would put H- Houdini uh, probably over Babe Ruth, even where their name is just a thing. It, it doesn't mean them anymore. Like it's become almost to the point of your Google search to start all this off. It's become almost completely detached from
1: who they are or what they do. Like Kevin Moss- Kevin Mossian joe you know
0: a little bit like kevin Mossian, yeah i think that's a good one i think that's fair Ron Kittle-ian, i think is, is a good one um yeah you know it's funny you can mention ruth the, the, this to be perfectly honest the, this story this whole book notion began with ruth uh i was pitched a, a babe ruth book that was that was what uh i was originally pitched and it didn't it didn't interest me. I, I didn't. Mm-hmm. I didn't see anything new I could say about Babe Ruth. But, but what did interest me was this notion of exactly what you said. Well, the fact that he still matters. That he still thrives. Nobody. There's no way anybody in the 1920s in any other sport could be considered the greatest today. There's. We would never accept that. We would. It's laughable that we would think a quarterback from the 1920s. Or a basketball player from the 1920s, or a runner from the 1920s, or a soccer player from the 1920s, is better than anybody today. That's it's it's ridiculous. But with Babe Ruth, it's not only accepted; it's it's the by far unanimous decision. And and so, so I, I really was trying to to get at that. And and I Ruth wasn't the guy to do it with, and Houdini was, and that's really where it came from. So I've I've actually tried pretty hard to find. People uh, from that era, uh, specifically, and obviously, if you go into the fifties and sixties, it starts changing a little bit. But particularly from the era of the twenties and tens, and even into the thirties, I mean, nobody cares about Rudolph Valentino anymore. I mean, that just doesn't that doesn't carry any real weight anymore. I mean, nobody really cares about about. Uh, uh you know almost anybody I mean you can think of uh, almost anybody from that time who were huge at that time. Douglas Fairbanks was huge at that time uh nobody cares you know nobody cares about about them now and and I will say nobody they all have their own little fan clubs, but it, they're certainly not at the level of Houdini. Uh, you know, I think you almost have to go back to go a little later. It's almost like how long will Elvis be? A huge deal. Like, how long will Marilyn Monroe be a huge deal? How long will the Beatles be a huge deal? Like, will they? Will people be talking about them? And in you know, now we're talking. So you know, the Beatles are the '60s. I mean, that's 50 years ago. So in another 50 years, are the Beatles still going to be a major thing? Is Elvis still going to be? I mean, even Elvis is sort of faded in some ways. Uh, Will Michael Jackson be a big deal in 80 years, 70 years?
1: It's, it's hard to imagine. Joe, given where our show is sports talk with no sports talk, I got to say a Hall of Fame inductee moment is truly you being pitched a Babe Ruth book and coming back with a book about magic. That's, <laughs> that's unbelievable. That's, that
0: was Yeah, and it was, and it was, it was great because everybody, everybody was sort of like, yeah, well... Um, <laughs> What about Lou Gehrig? Lou Gehrig? Is that interesting? You know, is
1: really It's like you drafted uh, Christmas and Sarajevo to them, you know?
0: <laughs> <laughs> that that was oh, thankfully they, that was not as bad as the <laughs> Christmas and Sarajevo pick. But it really is it really does amaze me. I mean I look back on first of all it amazes me that I that I actually had the had the nerve to even do it because again, I don't know anybody. Now you know, I've been so lucky. I mean and 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 you know I'd be remiss if I say that all of these people I'm I'm a idiot, you know. I'm not I'm 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 not s- smart in any way. Certainly not even in sports. I don't know anything. But in magic, I knew nothing. I'm going to David Copperfield. I'm going to Joshua Jay. I'm going to Jim Steinmeier, I'm going to 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 all of these incredible people, uh, great great magicians and and magical thinkers. Mike Caveney, and on and on, and saying, Hey, I'm doing this book on Houdini, which, you know, there've been a lot of books about Houdini and convincing them somehow, some way that this book is going to be different. And this book is going to be cool and, and, and new and, and all of that. Uh, I, I looking back and seeing how it worked out is amazing, but looking back and seeing how it worked out makes me think, "Whoa, I was insane for thinking I was going to be able to pull this off. Um, but people have been incredible all the way, just just absolutely
1: incredible. That's awesome, man. I mean, look, we, we tell everyone to follow you on Twitter, to read you on uh, MLB.com, to listen to the podcast. Oh, uh, to, to close out, when is the book uh, scheduled to uh, to hit shelves? And also, I saw on Instagram you joined the Society of American Magicians. So, uh, Joe, uh, does membership have its privileges? It,
0: it does. I, I am not only a <laughs> member of the Society of American Magicians, I'm also a member of the International Magical something. <laughs> and uh, and I am, I am a full-fledged member of the Magic Castle in Los Angeles, which is an amazing thing, uh, considering I don't live anywhere near Los Angeles, so I don't ever get to go. Uh, but I am an actual member of the Magic Castle, so that's been uh, amazing. Um, the hope is the book is going to come out fall of this year fall of 2018 in order for that to happen at least this is what they tell me and and, you know i I, like i say it's my fifth book but there's still some elements of of writing that i'm not completely up on uh in order for that to happen i apparently have to finish it so (laughs) so so i'm gonna have to start there i guess and, and get
1: that done And we are back in the sports world. Athletes, coaches, media, they all try to do interesting things, and we tell them to get back to watching game film. That's ridiculous. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So we celebrate locker room distractions and on this show tell you what's distracting us week in, week out. Guys, I'm going to go first. Well, since we're throwing things back old school with hammers, I might as well throw back old school with a good old fashioned podcast recommendation from Brad Burke. This one is called Slow Burn, and it's an investigation of oh, the Watergate yeah. series great guy, Slate. So here's the deal. <laughs> wow, I think girl. this show is a bit. Hit or miss for me. Like some episodes huh. really grab me, other episodes grab me a little bit less, and that's what I like about it. It's a it's a tight sort of a tight, um, well researched, well reported look at various players in the Watergate saga. And what I really like about it is it's it's gone into places that I I've just never heard of. Um, just different different people that were involved in some capacity. That I thought were really interesting, or I, 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 maybe gotten a glancing mention of. It is not just a, uh, a really by the book um, narrative, chronological approach to Watergate. It's, it's, it's kind of diving, jumping around. And uh, recent episodes, uh, you know, were about just all the different conspiracy theories of the time, or how people sort of digested, uh, digested the the news and and the parallels between you know how they did back then and how we do now. So I think it's a really good listen. I would suggest people, um, you know, take a listen to it. My only critique at the end of the first intro episode, you know, the guy makes a pretty strong comparison to what's going on with Russia and Trump, and I just feel like they didn't need to go there. Like, like you can, it is still possible to put out uh, something that is uh, inherently reflective of our modern times, and not just be like, by the way. <laughs> It is. Um, but do, so whether whatever your political, um, uh, you know, ideas are, don't let that, uh, you know, dissuade you. It's not just like a hit job on our current administration under the veil of Watergate. I think it's really interesting, fascinating um, look at Watergate. And and I do think there are lessons to be learned by everyone about the way we process and uh, and either handle or dismantle the modern news cycles um, you know, back then through now, so take a listen to it. Slow burn, uh, highly recommended.
3: I I love. I will echo that. It was almost my distraction for this week until something a little more appropriate came up. Uh, given our interview subject, but um, that same first episode, I think at the end, the part where you that you were critiquing, uh, there's a bite from Dick Cavett that I love, where he talks about how basically Watergate was like his study abroad experience. Like he feels like it was a terrible time and everybody was stressed and, you know, nobody knew what was happening. And at the same time, he feels like it was like when he got to go live and study in Paris for a little while and he can never get back there in his life. All right, Gareth, why don't you go next? What's distracting you this week? Uh, for You know, it almost, I, it's worth noting too, as I finish that, I, I wanted to say like, I've recommended a lot of podcasts on this show. I haven't finished all the podcasts I've recommended, but I actually (laughs) plan on finishing Slow Burn. (laughs) So so the Joe Paz interview, that was a really fun one. It was very cool to talk about Magic and Harry Houdini. So this weekend, uh, a couple dads and myself took all of our daughters out to one of their... One of them has a beach house. And so we all went to the beach house in the winter. We went swimming at a pool, uh, you know... The dads all hung out. The girls all hung out and played American Girl Dolls. It was a really sweet weekend. And we were like, we're not going to watch any... We won't let the girls watch any TV. Except this one dad was like, well, look. My daughter brought this DVD. She loves it. She's obsessed with it. And it was a DVD of Magic Al. A local New York, like, basically bar mitzvah magician. Doing, like... All right, no offense, Al, if you're listening. That's that was a pretty bad DVD you made, man. Like or like in it was like watching a DVD in 2018 that was probably made in 2002. So at first, I'm like, <laughs> man,
1: what, what,
3: what is this crap these kids are watching? As it goes along, there's a laugh track, there's lighting cues, there's like a little rabbit puppet that pops up. Next thing I know, it's the next morning. The girls are watching Al for a second time, and literally they're taking notes. And these four girls, ages between five and three quarters and eight, then proceeded to put on a 45-minute magic show for us, Whoa. the three dads, inspired by Magic Al. And so, uh, coming on the heels of the Joe Poznaski interview, uh, Posn- uh Poznanski, excuse me, interview I j- with about Houdini. I just wanted to give it up for the distraction of magic. And if you can seek out and find Magic Owls DVD, I don't know that it's necessarily the most up-to-date thing, but it will certainly inspire some six-year-olds to do some crazy stuff.
2: Cool. Uh, I actually am going to change my distraction to one more hammer and... Um, the odds of this person joining are slim but I would like to throw a hammer out to Joe Reed um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, speaking of someone with distractions Joe you have a lot of them and we miss you please come back
1: Joe you have a home here my friend we we, we are keeping the light out keeping the light on for you Okay, that's our show this week. I uh, want to give a shout out to Joe Posnanski. Go listen to the podcast. I did mention on the top of the show his episode with Brandon McCarthy, uh, where they drafted Christmas songs. That is a strong listen, even after the holiday season has wrapped, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, you know, I, and uh, also go back and listen to our interview with his uh, podcast uh, co-host Michael Shore on the Power Broker. Uh, i want to say that was uh last no, like almost a year and a half ago it was like, November in of
3: 2016 i was on the set of the new England or of the CBS Thanksgiving teas as we shot it i like that was our lunch break we recorded it
1: so huh yeah man good good times good times all right any other uh shout outs this week Gareth? Yeah, I gotta give a shout
3: out to my wife. Uh, this was a big episode where she really helped me out just before we were gonna record this interview. I couldn't get uh, the card in my recorder to work and she fixed that and so she became the tech team. You heard me quote her in the interview um, with Joe Boz and uh, yeah, she also puts up with me taking over our living room Couple times a month to record the podcast. So to the tech team, editorial assistant, and putting up with it, this seemed like a great week to give a shout out to Amy Santa Maria, my wife.
1: <laughs> Adam, shout outs.
2: I'll just go with the usual quickly before my battery dies. Uh, my boy Uzi, Def Jeff, Little Swanee, Meech, ron Mac, and my other cousin Ron.
1: And in the immortal words of poet laureate Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. Stay booty.